Hello and welcome to Speaking Spirit, where we talk about all things spiritual. Your host, John Moore, is a shamanic practitioner and spiritual teacher. And now, here's John. Hello everybody. Good morning or whatever time of day it is where you are when you are listening to this. Uh, It is morning here. It is a brisk morning. It's November in Maine, where I live, and it was about 24 degrees Fahrenheit this morning when I drove my daughters to school. That, uh, for you in the world of Celsius, is below zero. It's freezing. Ice on my windshield this morning when I went out to my car. It's cold, but it's nice. Um, it's nice to feel the brisk air. I'm one of these people that, <clears throat> excuse me, that enjoys the changes in seasons a whole lot. It's one of the nice things about living in the Northeast. Today, my friends, I'm going to talk to you about um, things, mysterious things. I'm going to talk to you about. Um, astral projection, the astral body, the astral plane, and I am going to relate it all to shamanism because that's what I know. (laughs) Um, I'm sure there are lots of other people who have uh, different perspectives, and that's cool, Um, but I, I do try to not speak from a perspective that I don't have. That would not be helpful for anyone, and it would make me look uh, silly, and that's not something I want to do. So, I'm going to talk about the astral today, particularly the astral body and astral travel, astral projection, the astral plane, but I think, you know, what I need to do first is to set a baseline and to set uh, set up, you know, this is something I always like to do. I like to define my terms and talk about, you know, set a baseline for what I'm explaining. And this is not because my explanations are better than anybody else's. It's, or that I expect you to, you know, adopt my definitions without question. This is only so that you can better understand what I mean when I'm talking about what I'm, what I happen to be talking about. So uh, I'm going to set a baseline, I'm going to talk about some definitions, and certainly I'm going to be talking about spiritual things which are non-physical and are experienced in different ways depending upon who you are and what culture you come from and all kinds of things. So there will be definitions of the same word that don't match mine, there will be different words used for the same things that I'm describing and that's totally fine. These are not contradictions. These are just differences in the way that words are used. So, for example, in the United States where I live, I call something an elevator. And in the UK, they call it a lift. Who's right and who's wrong? Well, nobody's, nobody's wrong, right? We just use different words for the same thing. And, you know, there are other words where over there, um, a biscuit means something, means what we would call a cookie over here. 
I watch a lot of the Great British Baking Show. It's one of my favorite shows. And I have to remember when they're talking about biscuits, they're not talking about what we call biscuits. <clears throat> Is that right? It's not right or wrong. It's just how they're using words. So that's my only intention in when I say this is what this means. It is always what it means to me. And whether or not you um, adopt that, I don't, it doesn't matter to me if you adopt my definitions of things. I just want, I, I want to create understanding between us. So I'm going to, I'm going to start by talking about a little bit about models. And I promise I'm going to get to um, where where I'm going. <laughs> I promise I'm going to get to the astral stuff first. But I need to talk about models a little bit. And what I mean by a model is a representation of something. Something that is symbolic, but in a representational way. So if I look at the word food written out on a piece of paper, that's a symbol for food, but it's not representational. It doesn't look like food. Right, I can't pick it pick it up. I can't. But when my daughters were little, they played with little plastic. Um, they played with plastic representations of food a lot. We had plastic fruit and plastic this and plastic that, and they would play grocery store and kitchen and I don't know, throw plastic fruit at each other. Whatever they would do with it, those are models of fruit. They are not fruit. They are models because they're representational. Okay, so a model includes something that might like a map. A map is a representation of, you know, an area. I use maps all the time, uh, you know, when I'm trying to get places. Maps in my phone, my GPS helps me navigate places where I would get lost normally. And the map in there is a model because the model is not the road, but the road is represented there. And I can, you know, it, it is somewhat useful to me to be able to look at a representation of the road and see where I'm supposed to be going. So models always have two um, limitations, right? Every model, uh, no matter what it is, if it's a model of, you know, it's a plastic model of food or um, a map or... Um, a model, you know, a plastic model that you build or an architect's model that they build of a building they're about to construct or a mental model, which is a representation of something. All models have two major limitations and we'll call those limita limitations deletions and distortions, right? So deletions are that all maps delete a certain amount of information. There are no maps that I'm aware of out there that are, first of all, one-for-one one representations, right? There's an old joke from the comedian Stephen Wright who said, I have a, a full-scale map of full-scale map of the United States. It says one mile equals one mile. It's very difficult to fold, right? It's kind of funny if you think about that. That wouldn't be a very useful map, right? And so all maps delete certain amounts of information, so if I'm looking at a topographical map, for example, it's going to show me elevation and lakes and all of that stuff, but it probably not going to show me like population density because that's not useful when I'm using that kind of map, when I'm trying to like navigate a mountain range or something like that. 
And a street map is a different kind of map, and that helps me navigate the streets. But it might not show me elevation, or it might not show me where um, people's houses are. So it necessarily deletes information. No map is complete. And when we understand that, we can start to question our own mental models of things. When we think we know everything about anything, trust me, we do not. Because everything that we hold in our minds are models or models of what the reality of something is. And you can know a whole lot about something, right? You could be an expert in... um, I went to school with somebody who was studying fish neurology, right? I have to say that is, you know, he's probably the only person I, there are probably lots of fish neurologists out there, but um, that's a very specific thing. And you can gain a lot of expertise when you learn something, but does he know absolutely everything there is to know about fish neurology? Probably not. Or a specific nervous system of specific breed of fish, He would know more than, certainly more than I do. So this person has a mental model of fish neurology that is probably much more detailed, has much less deletion than I have. So that is the first limitation is deletion. And the other one is distortion in that no map is a perfect representation. Some maps get, or models, I'm sorry, some models get really close you know, the, the plastic fruit model is not very accurate. You know, the shapes, the sizes might be different. If I cut it open, it's not going to look the same on the inside. If I look at it under a microscope, you know, it's not going to have cells the way fruit might. Same thing with a map. Map's going to distort slightly. And, you know, we know that there are inaccuracies in all maps, there's a level of inaccuracy. There, there are you know, some distortions there. Also, the Earth is round. I hate to tell you if you think the Earth is flat. I have actually flown around the Earth, and it is a ball like every other planet in our solar system and prob- most likely in the universe. It is a ball, and it, uh, it's round. So when I have a map that I can lay out flat on a table... It has to distort because, you know, it might try to represent the curvature of the Earth. But again, it's a flat, it's a flat map. You know, if you've ever seen the, you know, maps of the world where they try to lay out all the countries on a flat surface are incredibly distorted. They have to be, you know, because the world isn't flat. It's a globe. And when you try to lay everything out, um, you know, and it doesn't curve, right? So things on the same things on the same latitude don't curve around the poles. That is very distorted. So all maps delete and distort. Why am I talking about? I'm using the term map and model kind of interchangeably here. Sorry. Why am I talking about models? Why am I talking about maps? Well, because I'm going to, and I spent a lot of time on this, and I realize this, but it's really important. It's really important, even beyond what I'm going to talk about today, to start to look at the models of things we hold in our, in our 
brains, in our consciousness, in our unconsciousness, we look at the models of things we and we start to realize that we do we everything we look at, everything we think we know is missing information and is distorted. Right? So we do not accurately 100% accurately know anything. That's just impossible. And becoming comfortable with that is a cool thing. It allows us to play with our perception of reality a little bit. Um, Robert Anton Wilson, whether you like his writing or not, wrote about, we live in these reality tunnels. We live in these paradigms, these reality tunnels where, you know, if something really bizarre happens outside of our the, the tunnel vision we have about the reality we live in, we tend to negate it because it's hard for us to grasp. And we have this thing called cognitive dissonance, which is it's hard to, it's hard to hold competing feelings or competing ideas in your head at the same time. So if I were, so I believe that the world is round. I have experienced the world is round. I've been up in a plane and gone, you know, flown completely around the earth I went to Asia flying in one direction, and I came back flying in another direction. So I have been around, I've been around the earth and um, seen, it, seen it as round. So it would be hard for me to simultaneously hold the idea that the earth is flat. That would cause a level of discomfort, and that's called cognitive dissonance. So what I ask then for you and for myself is, you know, you, when you develop some flexibility in your belief system, in your models of the world, you become more adaptable. You become more resilient. So when you can step in and say, um, okay, you know, what, what if, I'm not saying you need to change your beliefs about anything, but... If you're like, what if I didn't believe this or what if I believed something different? How would that affect me? You can do these mental experiments and they can prove very fruitful. You can find out, you can learn things about yourself. You can learn things about the world. You can start to empathize with other people as well because you can take on their perspective better. So now that I've gone through all of that, <laughs> I spent a quarter of the show talking about models, but I think it's important I could do an entire show about this. But I'm going to apply this to some shamanic and spiritual stuff, I promise. So I'm going to talk about the astral. And I'm going to talk about first models of... Um, I'm just going to deal with human beings at this point. You think of a human being... So my model in my brain of a human being is an individual, a person, okay, human being has, has a body, they have a mind, they have a spirit. This is my model. Some people have different models. They have different constructs. And of course, there's deletion and distortion going on with my model of what a human being is. I understand that. And if you understand that, um, it makes it makes taking on new ideas much easier. 
So in my model of human beings, they are, my concept of what humans are, are they are complex systems. A human being is, is a complex system of interpenetrating and interlocking systems. Interlocking may not be a great word, but I, I have to come up with a better one. Interactive systems. Many, 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 many interactive systems. So I will give you an example. We will take the physical body. If we take that as a single system, the physical part of a human being, we have all of these systems. We have the nervous system, the respiratory system, the circulatory system, the digestive system, the reproductive system, all of these systems. And so just the body is a very is a set of very complex systems. And there are, you know, like I said, there's somebody who studies fish neurology. So you can have, you have experts who study just kind of one system at a time. However, let's talk about how these systems interpenetrate, interact, and interlock. So if I just think about my respiratory system, we'll get even simpler. I'll talk about my lungs just specifically my lungs. Okay, that's part of my respiratory system. Well, my lungs move in part because of the diaphragm muscle in my stomach. So, you know, is that is my diaphragm part of my respiratory or muscular system? Or are these two systems interacting and interpenetrating somehow? Do they sometimes occupy the same space? Do they... You know, do they work together? We talk about the ribs that go around my lungs, and those are, you know, there are muscles, there are muscles there, and the ribs have a certain amount of cartilage and and flexibility, and my ability to breathe is affected by my um, ribs' ability to flex and move, and the musculature in there. So there's. You know, now we have at least three systems working together. Okay, and then inside my lungs, and, you know, you'll pardon me if I'm, I'm not a doctor, <laughs> I'm not an expert, but so I'm going to, you know, if I'm, if I'm misspeaking a little bit about where things, where things lie, please forgive me. It's just to make a point. So inside my lungs, there are um, nerves, nerve cells, whatever, that pick up things like um, the amount of carbon dioxide I have in my system and relay that to my brain. So there's an overlap with the nervous system. And, of course, the nervous system overlaps with the, the, um, you know, the, the musculature that creates my breathing. And, you know, so everything interacts, interpenetrates. These systems don't live in isolation. Okay, so the physical body is one system. In many esoteric or occult practices, schools of thought, there are, humans have many bodies. Okay, the physical is one. The physical is dense matter. It's matter, it's very dense, it has mass, it has weight, it has a definite shape. You know, that we can deform that shape, we can change it, but it is rather solid. We experience it as rather solid. 
Um, and then, you know, the, the other the other bodies that essentially overlap and interpenetrate and interact with the physical body and with each other get less and less dense. So, you know, at kind of the next level of density, we have the etheric or energy body, right? And if you've had acupuncture or practiced Tai Chi or gotten Reiki, this is energy body work. Things that may closely align with the very close to the physical body, closely align. There are, you know, again, the energy body has many systems. You know, in acupuncture, if you look at, you know, acupuncture charts, there are all these meridians and vessels and, um, you know, all of this stuff. And, uh, you know, outside of that, outside of the body, you have what's called the etheric double, which is what a lot of people see when they see auras. You know, it's etheric energy that extends outside the body, slightly, you know, slightly outside the body, an inch or a couple inches away. And then beyond that is what people call the aura, right? If you see auras, and that can go many, many feet, dozens of feet, or sometimes it's very close, and that is much less formless. It's less dense than the meridians and the... the the uh, you know the the vessels and and it's much less dense than the etheric double. So again, the etheric body, if you you know, and body is a weird term for it because we think of body being very physical, but the etheric body is the closest spiritual body that we have to to the physical in this model. And we can talk about density, or we can talk about frequency is the closest frequency to the material world. And the etheric body is very affected by the physical body. So, for example, this is how Tai Chi or Qigong work, right? We move, we move energy around in our bodies by moving our bodies because these things interact. Much like flexing my diaphragm moves air into my lungs. Okay, these things are interactive and, and interpenetrative. So... You know, if we're going, and again, you know, I'm making these artificial distinctions. This is a model. It is, you know, it's it's deleting information and it's distorting. So where does one body end and the other one begin? It's really, really hard. It's really up for debate. And it doesn't really matter all that much to me anyway. Um, and what matters in model, I'm going to go back to models just for a moment. What matters to in, in a model is really how useful it is, how, how suited it is to purpose. So a street map is very helpful to me if I am navigating in a car where a topical, topographical map might not be as helpful because I don't need to know the elevations of mountains with no roads on them. I'm not going to be driving through them. But I could still use it as kind of suited. But if I'm trying to determine the elevation of a mountain or the depth of a lake or something like that, then the map in my phone, the GPS in my phone, is probably not going to be suited for that. But they're both models of the same thing. So again, the model is what measures how good a model is. You know, good is a relative term, but it's really how suited something is to its purpose. So just for explanation, I'm using this model. I realize 
it's not perfect. And in some esoteric systems, they're going to use uh, these different bodies in different ways, and so they will have a different map of the bodies. And that's totally fine. I understand that these things will differ. I'm okay with that. I understand how models work. I have a model of models. That's very useful. So when we move beyond the etheric, the energy body, kind of the next level down in this model is the astral, the astral body. And the astral body is less dense than the etheric. It is a different frequency. I don't know if you would call it higher or lower, but I perceive it as higher in frequency. The physical body, to me, is perceived as, we're talking about vibrational frequency, as lower in frequency because it's closer, you know, it's physical, it's slower, right? Than Slower than thought, for example. So let's talk about the astral. People might know astral projection, right? Out-of-body experiences, So the astral is the realm of imagination, and it's really where, um, you know, our imagination interacts with our spirit. So there's an overlap with what we call the mental body, the emotional body, all of these, all of these things. Um, The and as we get, as we get uh, less dense, as we move away from the physical things become more formless. So the astral body is more formless than the etheric body. The etheric body is very closely follows the pattern of the physical body. When I move my arm, the arm of my etheric double, when I move my physical arm, I'm also moving the meridians that go through my arm that are part of the etheric. And I'm also moving my etheric double in a way and probably affecting my aura a bit. So the astral is much less dense and is much more formless. However, when we astrally travel or dream, when you dream, we're dealing with the astral because, again, it is the the realm of imagination. Things can seem to have quite a lot of form. And this is just our consciousness making meaning out of these things. And in so when when I perform a shamanic journey, which is which is a type of astral travel, I leave my body using an altered state of consciousness, and I travel in these non ordinary realms. Um, I am not actually traveling traveling anywhere physical. Right. If I go to the lower world, I am my travel into the earth is metaphoric. Right. I'm not going into a pool of lava somewhere or into the core of the earth. I'm traveling to another realm. I'm using that. I'm using my imagination to um, and metaphor to tune into these realms. But they all, you know, because. They are so formless, time and space doesn't really apply to them in the same way that it applies in the physical world. We know that time and space 
are intimately linked with mass. And the astral body has does not have what we would consider mass. So while time flows in the astral, it is much looser. And this is why we can do things in the astral like look at probable futures. And I will say that the future, the physical future is not set in stone. So anybody who predicts the future is predicting probabilities. Anybody who affects things in the future through magical or esoteric means is affecting probabilities, tipping things in one direction or another. And honestly, that is totally fine. Like that's, you know, that's okay to understand that. Um, So time does flow, but it flows in a really different way and where we kind of explore probabilities. We can also go backward in time and explore past lives or, you know, things that, things that happened 10 minutes ago or what have you in some level of detail because those things are recorded. They're recorded in the astral. So, so the astral, so astral projection people kind of know about. And I'll tell you that when I was a boy, um, I had a number of out-of-body experiences. And um, at first, they frightened me. And then I became really interested in them. And then I found a book in my library about out-of-body experiences. And I tried for a really long time to replicate them with some, you know, with some success and some, you know, some failure. Didn't really know what I was doing. But thought it was fascinating. Had some lucid dreams as well. Lucid dreaming is very close. And then I started studying shamanism. And shamanism has a tried and true method for getting out of your body and doing work and doing things on the spiritual realm. Um, and that's cool because now I can do this. Now I can do this at will. And it's much more useful. You know, as a kid, I was just curious. Um. My journeys these days are less curious and more purposeful. I do journeys for clients. I do journeys to divine information, to provide healing, that sort of thing. So um, in a class recently that I was teaching, a student asked, what is the difference between astral travel and shamanic journeying? And my answer to that, and other practitioners might disagree, but um, the you know the other practitioners I've talked to seem to think that this fits, is that astral travel is mostly when people do that, when people project astrally, is mostly what we would call a middle world journey in shamanism. It is one type of shamanic journey. And the difference is that it is it in, when we journey in shamanism, we always go with a helping spirit, particularly in the middle world. The middle world is the spiritual overlay of the physical world, is the astral version of the world that we live in. So we live in the middle world because we we live in this. We live in this environment, and there isn't a spiritual component behind everything. Um, which is at the essence of everything, and that's the astral. And when we travel, when we do middle world journeying, we can see physical objects, but what we're seeing is the 
um, astral and etheric representations of those. So we can see spirits. We can see ghosts. Ghosts are also astral beings. Most of the time, at least in my experience, they do not have an etheric component. So one of these days I will deeply explore on this show what happens when we die and um, what about ghosts and what about reincarnation and all of those things. I'll do that in depth. Um, But when we have ghosts, when they're stuck here, at least in my experience, they are... They are astral, so their mental their mental components, the etheric form, kind of gets stripped away. Now, um, the astral and the etheric bodies can be strongly affected by our life experiences. That's why acupuncture works. Acupuncture and Reiki work on the etheric. They work on the energy body, and we can have we can have wounds to our energy body, the evil eye is something that exists in many... The idea of the evil eye um, is something that exists in many, many cultures. Um, And I can tell you that is a real thing that some people just have. Some people seem to be genetically able to do this. And it is um, extremely damaging to the etheric body. It's You can imagine it as sort of like laser beams shooting out of somebody's eye when they feel really angry or jealous or what have you. And it can burn into the etheric body, which can cause sickness and bad luck and all kinds of all kinds of things. I'll do a whole episode on luck too. Um, because luck isn't just a concept, it's an energy in my model of in my model of things. Uh, so, you know, the astral, when we at, when when people astral project when they practice astral projection and lucid dreaming and stuff, they're doing they're traveling and they're um, but they're not going with helping spirits, which is what shamans do. So when I travel in the middle world, I will always ask helping spirits to accompany me. The reason for that is, um, one is they act as tour guides. They show me if I'm looking for something or if I'm trying to find a person that I'm working with or uh, I'm trying to find lost soul essences. And soul essences are astral. I'll talk about that in a moment. So when, you know, when we travel, you know, the other thing that can happen is, um, you know, there can be suffering spirits out there. So ghosts and, you know, non-human spirits and all kinds of things. And not always spirits that mean us harm, but spirits that could do us some damage if they just decided to hang out or follow us home or wreak some havoc in our lives. Um, And so helping spirits protect us that way as well. Um, And so, you know, it's a little bit of a caution about astral projection. If it's something you practice all the time, you might want to take up, you know, learn from a shamanic teacher, such as myself or somebody else, um, shamanic journeying. It'll only make your astral projection better, and it will definitely make it safer. So when I travel in my astral body, the astral body, because it is really affected, the astral is really affected by imagination. And imagination doesn't just mean I'm making things up. It means I'm giving form to something. I'm giving an image, imagine, 
I'm giving an image to something. So it will appear and I'll have I'll hear sounds and I'll I'll have sensations that I'll feel and I'll smell things. But these are not coming in through physical organs, they're coming in as spiritual information interpreted in my consciousness as more or less physical things. Although, you know, it's very loose. There's shape shifting that can happen. You know, when we talk about shape shifting, I have never witnessed somebody physically shape shifting. So I don't know if that is a realistic thing or not. If it is, it's very rare. But I have experienced shape shifting on the astral, both myself and others. Other people who are, you know, in human, still in human body, but who are, you know, meeting me during a journey. Um, and spirits shapeshift all the time. My helping spirits show up in different ways. So one of the thing, one of the ways this gets really interesting is um, when you look at spirits from mythology, gods and goddesses and angels and mythological beings, right? And, um, you know, these things do exist. They exist at least because people have given them form, imaginative form, but... You know, honestly, when you look at how there's overlap between all of the myths of the world, um, you realize that there, there's something to it. There's an essence there. There's something underneath it that's happening. Um, but what you do have very frequently is you will have um, gods and goddesses or certain beings that will take on different forms depending upon how they're represented. So in, so for example, in, um, you know, Hinduism and some forms of like tantric Buddhism and stuff, you will have deities who will have, um, you know, will have like a, I don't know what you call it, like a happy form and a wrathful form. And the wrathful form might be very brutal looking, for example, in, you know, it certainly happens in Greek mythology, you hear a lot of shape-shifting. Zeus was always turning himself into stuff, right? So these, because these beings that we might consider gods and goddesses can show up in different forms, it doesn't mean they're different beings and even different names for the same being, because honestly, you know, spiritual beings that are that advanced and that um, advanced is kind of a weird word, but they really are like like foreign to the point of being space aliens for us to try to understand. For us to try to understand them, we anthropomorphize them, meaning we turn them, we give them human form. So we, you know, depending upon your beliefs, many religions and spiritual belief systems have a very person-like image of God. If you are monotheistic or if you are polytheistic, you probably have um, gods and goddesses that are more or less human-formed. 
there are some differences. We have what are called therianthropes, which are beings that are half beast and half human or some part human. So we have things like um, fawns and satyrs, which are you know either part goat and part human or part horse and part human. And we have um, harpies, or which are you know birds with human heads, and we have uh, sirens, the sirens who can appear as mermaids, or you know so half fish, half human, or half bird and half human. So those are things you know, and so that's a very common shamanic theme as well, and we see that in cave paintings from tens of thousands of years ago. We see human beings with deer antlers, or we see people turning into buffalo, and that is such a common theme, and it's one of one of many, many reasons why we think shamanism goes back to the beginnings of human symbolic thought, right, where people started adopting spirituality and doing art, you know, making representations of things in deep caves, which we're pretty sure those were, um, the reason for that was spiritual. Like, you know, if you were living from hunt to hunt in a very harsh environment, you probably wouldn't crawl on your belly through a quarter mile long cave to spend, you know, Years, decades, even, you know, sometimes there are cave paintings that are, you know, thousands of years apart in the same cave, to pay, just to paint some art in a place where you weren't living. Because we know that there, you know, there are these caves that are full of paintings that have no evidence of people living or eating in them, you know. So pretty sure that these were, and because of the images, that these were spiritual things. So were people at one time able to turn into animals in the physical realm? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I don't understand how it could be possible, but there are lots of things today that we didn't think were possible some time ago, faster than like communication and quantum entanglement and, you know, uh, space travel and flight. So I think of um, my grandmother, my grandmother just turned 105. She was born in 1916 in Bath, Maine. Still around, still kicking. And when I think about what it was like when she was born in 1916, and if I had been around then and told her, you know, say she was five, 1921, and I had told her, you know, in your lifetime, we will spe- we will send spacecraft you know to the end of the solar system and we will send people into space and people will walk on the moon and how crazy might i have sounded and yeah there was sci-fi back then you know there was hg wells and jules verne and all of that stuff back then but um you know that was pretty fanciful and if i had um you know, if I had told her that we would have machines where we could see inside the human body using magnets, that would have sounded crazy. 
very unrealistic. So who knows? Who knows what's possible? Nobody knows what's possible. We know it's probable. And that that's exciting to me. So let's talk about the astral plane. So this is a thing, and people think when they're traveling, you know, they're astrally projecting their projecting to the astral plane as if there is one. That's sort of like me saying, I'm traveling to Europe. Sure, where? You know, where in Europe? There are many, many, you know, am I traveling to Eastern Europe? Am I traveling to Western Europe? Am I traveling to the parts of Europe where they speak French? Am I going to the Alps? Am I going to... um, Northern Scandinavia, you know, that not really specific. Europe is a general location, as is the astral plane, because there are... So shamans, when we journey, generally we recognize three worlds, the upper world, the middle world, and the lower world. And you can see why the world tree or the axis mundi are important symbols in shamanism because the roots of the tree connect beneath the earth and the branches go up to the sky and the trunk of the tree is where we are. So it's a very very representational, representative, I guess that's a better word, representative of man and how we can travel up, we can travel down and we we kind of live here. But those three worlds, again, are like saying I'm going to Europe. There are many, many worlds. I don't know how many. Probably infinite. There are people who are mapping out these worlds, which I find fascinating. Um, I have little little areas that I go to pretty regularly when I, when I journey. Um, And up and down are metaphors, they're symbols. Again, it's just about tuning the consciousness to different layers of reality. So one model, one way, one representation that I like to look at at this as a metaphor. If you think about, um, you know, if you had, uh, you know, there used to be, maybe still have these anatomy books, right? And they had um, sheets of clear acetate or plastic, and, you know, it would start with, you know, it would start with a page that had the skeletal system. And, you know, then you would have a piece of plastic that would lay over that, that would show the muscles and that would lay over the, the um, you know, the skeletal system. And then you would have another clear piece of plastic that would lay over that, which might be the organs, right? Or, you know, the different systems. And then another one that might be the blood vessels. And then... You know, another one that would lay over that that would have the, the skin, you know, that sort of thing. There were representations like that. And if you take all of those kind of sandwiched together, um, you know, that's a little bit what the world is like from my perspective, what the worlds are like from my perspective. They're, they all kind of exist together. They interact and interpenetrate just like the human body does. And because they don't occupy physical space always, although the etheric the etheric does sort of occupy physical space, but the astral does not, travel is really metaphoric. But 
it's the only way because we are so tied into the physical living in the physical and traveling around in the physical and time and space have meaning for us. Um, it's, it tends to be how we interpret things on the astral plane. So I want to talk briefly about what can happen to the astral body. And this is where shamanic healing comes into place. So another term for the astral body, and again, people might use these terms differently, but this is how I use them. Another term for the astral body is the soul body. And the soul body, I'm using these terms interchangeably. I don't, um, I don't recognize really a difference from them or between them. And so the soul body or the astral body, um, is definitely affected by our life experiences. It can be wounded. It can um, be drained of energy. It can All kinds of things can happen to it. And this is where much of shamanic healing comes in. Now, you might have heard of something called soul retrieval. That is a shamanic healing ceremony that, um, you know, is meant to help with trauma. And what happens with trauma is part of our soul body can break off and get lost. It basically splits to seek safety. And if that doesn't return on its own, that can get lost. And what happens is that bubbles, again, these layers affect each other. And that can manifest as sickness, it can manifest as depression, dissociation, all kinds of things. And so, you know, a shamanic practitioner will do a soul retrieval ceremony that will be meant to restore some of these soul essences, which will bring healing ability back to a person. Now, a lot of people go to shamanic healing, and they expect miraculous healing. I've got, you know, diabetes or lung cancer or kidney disease or something, and if you do a soul retrieval for me, I am going to be miraculously healed on the physical plane. It, unfortunately, most of the time it doesn't quite work that way. What happens is that, and I don't think it works that way with any with most or really any type of spiritual healing. I could be wrong. Again, anything's possible. But what happens is we create these spiritual conditions under which you can heal better. So sometimes soul retrieval will provide relief from things like depression or dissociation that, you know, some of those symptoms... Um, because the underlying spiritual conditions are are fixed. But sometimes there is also physical healing that needs to take place. So um, talk about depression for a second. So some people might get relief from soul retrieval, and some people might have problem, like physical problems that have to be healed to solve a depression 
issue. So depression, some people associate that with low levels of serotonin. So maybe your body's not producing enough serotonin. Um, there are very frequently, my understanding is with depressed people, there are inflammatory markers in their blood. So you might have to treat inflammation in your body. But again, it will be helpful to have the spiritual healing. And I always tell clients that, um, you know, spiritual healing works really well hand in hand with other forms of healing, which might include, you know, allopathic medicine, um, naturopathic medicine. It might include acupuncture. It might include um, dietary changes, exercise, physical therapy, what, what have you. You should not pass those things up in favor of spiritual healing. We so often, with a picture of the person in our head of a, you know, a man laying his hands on somebody and that person can walk all of a sudden. And it happens. It happens from time to time. Um, the faith healers you see on TV are mostly fake and um, unfortunately take advantage of a lot of people. And those people, when they follow up with them afterwards, somebody throws their crutches down and walks around. Um, when they do follow-ups to those people, they generally don't have long-term effects from the work, from the whatever whatever is supposed to have happened. Even though there's a placebo effect, and placebo is really the mental body affecting the physical. And um, even with that, you know, these faith healers, I would say mo- most, if not all of them, particularly if they're on TV asking for your money, um, are not really doing anything. And I'm, I'm sorry if you, if that is, you know, if that thought is discouraging to somebody or something along those lines. Um, but there has been so much fraud. I've seen, there's a guy I've seen on TV recently who got, uh, had a huge following years ago and he got caught. Um, he had a, a, an earpiece in his ear and they were feeding him information about people in the audience that they had researched. And some crew, some investigative crew went in there and using radio equipment picked up the signal from the control room that said, oh, over on your left side is Mrs. Smith. And she has a son who's suffering from, you know, uh, diabetes and she has back pain and whatever. And then you would see this guy on TV going, oh, over here, I feel there's Mrs. Smith, and oh, your son's got diabetes. And then people would take that as a sign that he was getting information from God or what have you. And he would put his hands on them, and go, oh, you're healed, and then walk away. And you would never, there'd be no follow-up or anything. And he was, he was um, stealing a lot of money from people. Um, and when he was found out and it was revealed he was a fraud, he lost almost everything. Well, guess what? <laughs> he's back, you know, it's 10 or 20 years later, he's back on TV doing the exact same thing. I really dislike that. I have to be honest. I really dislike that. I dislike a lack of ethics, particularly in the world of spirituality. Um, and, um, you know, I do believe in karma, so I do believe that he's probably going to suffer for the rest of his life, he's probably suffering now that he feels like he has to do this rather than making an honest living or actually helping people. 
Um, yeah, you know, but, um, he's a con man and he's still at it, unfortunately. And there's a lot of people who want to have miraculous healing and faith and, and all of these things. And I appreciate that. And I have a great deal of faith in spiritual healing and the power of the mind to heal and the power of the spirit to heal. Um, but I don't think that's what this guy is doing. I don't think he has mended his ways. I think he's, um, you know, when I watch him, I can see some of the tricks that he's doing to people where he, um, you know, grasps people by the head and puts his thumbs over their eyes and pushes them down on the floor. And here's, you know, here's a woman who's been on crutches and people think it's the power of, you know, the power of divinity knocking that woman over to heal her. And I was like, I could do that to anybody right now. I could, if I were, you know, if they let me grab their head and put my thumbs over their eyes, I could knock anybody, anybody down. Don't care how big or strong you are, but especially if you're an older woman on, you know, on, or an older person, doesn't matter to have to be a woman, an older person on crutches. It's obscene. Anyway, <laughs> off I go on a tangent. Um, so really this is, you know, this is meant to give you an understanding of the astral. There, there's been, um, there's a, a book and a mini series, I think on Netflix called Behind Her Eyes. And that prompted somebody to ask me recently on the radio about astral projection. And is it a thing? Is it real? Can people take over other people's bodies? Can, you know, so, you know, and that's a very, it's a TV eyesed version of that, and, um, you know, it is uh, um, not very realistic, but, you know, there's, like everything, there's some some truth to it as well, and so there's been some interest in it. And so every so often there's a resurgence in interest in um, astral travel and remote viewing and all these all of these things. Um, you know, and I may be biased towards shamanism, but if this is something you're interested in, Take a course in, um, you know, take an introduction to shamanism class. I'm not saying you've got to take the shamanic path for the rest of your life. That's definitely not for everyone. But, um, you know, if you're interested in soul travel, um, you know, it would behoove you to take an intro to shamanism class and learn a, you know, a safe and effective and controlled method of doing that. There may be some others out there I'm not aware of. I haven't seen any, but um, shamans have been doing this for, you know, millennia and millennia, so um, we're well-practiced. <laughs> Shamanic practitioners, we know what we're doing. And a good teacher will be able to walk you through these things very safely, very quickly and very effectively. I struggled for years trying to control astral projection, and then when I learned Shamanic Journey, I was like, oh, geez, that that's... I can do this anytime I want. Wow, that's something. Um, but, you know, there's some there's some aspects that you have to learn. So I am at just about an hour. I'm going to wrap up this episode. I hope this has been interesting. I hope you have found some things useful here. And, um, you know, don't forget to subscribe to the show if you are not. Um, also, just a couple of announcements on my side. I do have... A YouTube channel that I've launched recently, it's called Shaman's Tent. You can find it by searching on YouTube. And um, there's, gosh, over 50 videos on there. They're all instructional uh, and informational. And I have launched an app as well, which is called um, 
Shaman World, the Shaman World app. It's on iOS and Android. It's absolutely free. There's currently not even any advertising or anything on it. Um, it has links. You know, you can listen to this podcast on it. You can um, watch videos. You can read articles. Um, there are drum tracks if you decide to, if you practice shamanism on there. Um, so there's all kinds of stuff there. Um, and so all of this stuff is, all this stuff is absolutely 100% free. Um, and as is this podcast, it's just my way of talking about and sharing something I love and that I'm absolutely passionate about. And with that, I will wrap it up. I hope you are happy and healthy, and I will talk to you real soon. been listening to speaking spirit with your host john moore for more info or to contact john go to mainshaman.com that's m-a-i-n-e-s-h-a-m-a-n.com